to the Follow On Podcast here on followoncricket.com. Chinmay Vaidya, Ashay Chavan, Parth Joshi here with me. We'll be talking India, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Sri Lanka, West Indies. A lot of cricket going on, but we'll start with the Women's T20 World Cup, which just wrapped up Australia capturing World T20 title. It's an impressive run that they've had, and Alyssa Healy and Beth Mooney really took it away in the final. But what I want to talk about is what happened in the round before in the semis where India basically got, I don't want to say a free pass, but they got a pass to the finals because they were the top team in their group and England got left out because there was no reserve day for uh, a washed out semifinal. So we'll start with that. How can there not be a reserve day for a semifinal in a World Cup? Sounds like a sense of deja vu, doesn't it, Chinway? Maybe yeah. not for a semifinal, but just the whole idea of throwing away matches in a World Cup. So as large as our organization as ICC is, I mean, obviously they know you can't control the weather, but you have to have to plan for it, have a couple reserve days. It's not like the schedule is so brutal that teams are playing matches, you know, two days later. They have, like, probably a week off in between. And like you said, deja vu, there's a boundary comeback in the Men's World Cup, and here... Um, like the decider of circumstances, you have to plan for that. You have to account for it. That's like kind of just shameful. The problem wasn't that it was, you know, you can't predict the weather, but you can certainly plan for the weather. I think that that's the big problem here. Absolutely. Yep. And I, I think we talked about this quite a bit at the World Cup about how, how this impacts fans, this impacts players, this impacts strategy, this impacts the overall outcome of World Cups. And for, like Ashay, like you said, for an organization this big it's just unacceptable to have you know world cups events that come along once every four years and even those can't be decided uh, it's pretty ridiculous to me i think the ic avoided further scrutiny because the second semifinal was also rain delayed truncated and it was close to being you know almost called up so imagine a final decided with no semifinals played yeah been- it was really close and and south africa you know they have reason to be a, di- a little disappointed. And uh, Dane Van Nieker from South Africa basically said in the post-game press conference, you know, I'd rather play it out on the field instead of basically being handed a final. And some people thought she was basically taking a veiled shot at India for not having to play to get into the final. And, you know, India, what I mean, what can they do? The rules are the rules and, you know, you have to go by what you go by. And the Indian players were also, you know, sympathetic to England, who basically got left out because of a rain. But I think it speaks to the broader point of the ICC still just struggling to figure out basic things like having a reserve day for an elimination match. I understand in a group stage, if a, if a match gets washed out, you might not have reserve days for that. But in a knockout round, I mean, I think that's that's pretty crazy to not have a backup plan in case the weather um, doesn't cooperate because – Cricket is one of those sports where the weather is a big factor in whether the match is played or not. So I think you, you have to be able to plan for that. Yeah, and especially in a sport where, where weather conditions really do matter, especially in a sport, especially with this Women's World Cup, where the sample size is not really big to make it onto the next round, to make it to a semifinal, to make it to the knockout stage. And that's your one shot in four years, like I mentioned before. It, it just can't happen, especially with this short of a tournament, with this less amount of teams playing in the tournament it's it's just unacceptable slight correction um the women's world cups every two years 
but yeah, it still stands. And ICC was like they sell out money for Katy Perry, and and like that's another thing I want to tie up another point to was they just shattered like the viewing records. I think there was like eighty two thousand or something that showed up at the MCG, and even four years ago, the final had like what eleven thousand people show up. So look at like just imagine like the nine times the amount of people that came. Like I think they knew that because there was rising teams and like India being in it, England, and Australia. I think they had many, many more eyes around the world following the Women's World Cup this time around. And yes, you are right, Ashay. Yeah. The T20 World Cup, it is every two years. Yes. Yeah. So Ashay, you brought up what I wanted to talk about next was this Women's World Cup, and then even in twenty the twenty nineteen Men's, uh, you know, One Day World Cup. Both shattered viewing records, and I had it at a ninety thousand plus crowd at the MCG for the final on what happened to be International Women's Day. And we talked about when we were discussing the hundred on this podcast and kind of a, a new brand of cricket attracting a new audience. What we didn't really discuss was how the women's game has an opportunity to attract an entirely different audience, a segment of the population that was never really marketed to. And now all of a sudden you see, especially for for India fans, to see this team with a lot of unfamiliar faces, a lot of younger players, make it to a World Cup final, you know, rainouts aside, that's got to be something that's motivating for a lot of younger women who might want to take up this sport. Now you see what these players can achieve. So from that standpoint, the tournament was, uh, you know, a thundering success in my opinion. Absolutely, because one of India's stars is Shafali Varma, and she's 16 years old. So imagine playing in a World Cup final at age 16, and you know that that just speaks volumes to how far the women's game is coming in India. They probably they have a better, um, you know, states uh, system, um, even around like um, schools in India where women are taking up the game. And I think that just makes it far more achievable for an average, not average, but like uh, any women cricketer to achieve, like to aim to a high towards playing. You know, if she, if she can do it, then certainly other 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds can aim that high as well. Well, that was the India women's team who unfortunately fell short in the World Cup final against Australia, but an inspiring run, no doubt. Australia, on the other hand, credit to them lifting that home trophy. That's, that's always going to be something special. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, the men's team went to New Zealand and came back after a T20 ODI and test series with quite a bit to figure out. We'll talk about that after the break. You're listening to the Follow On Podcast here on followoncricket.com. Welcome back into the Follow On Podcast here on followoncricket.com. You can check us out on Facebook at the Follow On. Follow us on Twitter at the Follow On. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're talking the India-New Zealand Test Series, which was part of the World Test Championship, two test matches. On the last podcast, we made predictions. I had it at 1-1. Ashay, you had it at 1-0 in favor of India. And I believe Anish had it 1-0 in favor of India. Well, it ended up being 2-0 in favor of New Zealand. And neither match made it to a fifth day. The second test match did not make it to a fourth day. So India were thoroughly dominated by New Zealand in this two-test series. And before we get into what went right for New Zealand, what went wrong for India, I just want to make the point that India in the in the World Test Championship have played so far 
a West Indies team that struggles in test matches, a Bangladesh team at home that struggles in test matches, and a young South Africa team that was coming off a disastrous World Cup campaign and their administration was in uh, you know, full reshuffling mode. So India was racking up World Test Championship points and got a number one ranking. But it was safe to say that they hadn't really been tested as such in the format. And New Zealand, meanwhile, came off a big-time defeat against Australia in the Boxing Day Test Series. And, you know, Labuschagne had a great summer and New Zealand was struggling with some injuries. So I think we kind of went into this series looking at the recent form of both teams and thinking, well, this is going to be, you know, India should win this easily. But New Zealand at home are a really dominant test team. The last time New Zealand has lost a test match at home was in the 2015-16 season. So it's been a while since they've lost a test match at home. So they are a really good test side in home conditions. I think we kind of fail to account for that when looking at the matchup of these two teams. But it was still, you know, th- those points aside, this was probably the worst result India could have expected out of this, right? So, yeah, I, I believe so. I think we certainly overlooked how Indian batsmen, generally not named Kohli, but you can group them in, in that group, uh, fair outside of India because I think their schedule is so packed that they don't make it a priority to go play warm-up games, go 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 two weeks in advance, get used to the pitches, the bounce in the in Australia or the swing in New Zealand. And New Zealand's conditions are very very similar to England's, and you know that all our batsmen love to fish outside off and get caught that way. Um, and that's exactly what happened here. They none of them were able to handle a swing of Kyle Jamison, Bolt, and Saudi. Yeah, absolutely. So here, I, I generally, the excuse of not being there for a long period of time is usually valid. Here, there was a big series beforehand, and a lot of players were there, even who didn't make the ODI or the T20 squad. They were there weeks beforehand to practice in these conditions. So I don't think it was a factor of a conditions as much as just bad execution on the part of the Indian batsmen. I mean, like you said, Ashe, a lot of them fishing outside off. That should be the number one thing that you know not to do when the ball is swinging. You know, playing playing on the back foot half of the time when the ball is coming forward. Just basic things that you know when the ball is swinging and it's going to bounce a lot. Things that you just don't do. And it, it just seemed like there was a lack of execution, a loss of confidence after the first innings. And tip your hat off to New Zealand. I mean, Jameson came in here and basically was the best bowler in this series, maybe aside from Bolt's last innings, um, where he took India out almost by himself. But it was quite a show by the New Zealand bowling attack and and a lack of execution by the Indian batting side. And I think that momentum just carried over, and the Indian bowling lineup was tired afterwards. A lot of momentum for New Zealand, especially after uh, Kane Williamson and Taylor came out with a really good opening partnership in the first innings of that first match. And I think the tone was just set from the start, and I think it was hard for India to recover after that. So all around, great performance from New Zealand. And Chinmay, like you said, I I think this really was a good indication of where India actually stands when you talk about playing in tough conditions against tough teams. Yeah, we'll get to New Zealand and and Kyle Jamison in a second, because I think, I mean, he's just been an absolute discovery in this tour for New Zealand in the T20 ODI and Test Series. But I want to stick with India and I want to stick with the batting lineup, because when you look at the test team for India, you look at Cheteshwar Pujara and Virat Kohli as kind of the anchors and guys who will score runs. They combined for 138 runs 
in the four innings in this series. I mean, that's just not acceptable from any angle. I don't think that you can expect your two best players to not combine for at least a 50 average in it, in, in every innings, right? I, I think that's not unreasonable to expect. Absolutely not. Yep, definitely not a combination of the two. Absolutely. India had, in their four innings of batting, three total half centuries. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just unheard of. And the score all, all series was... Ken Williams was eighty something. Yeah, there so, weren't, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of big. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of big scores, but I think it was just so easy for New Zealand to consistently score, you know, twenty five, thirty per batsman, and then Kane obviously went on to make the the bigger score, but India just never found that level of, I guess, batting prowess. I mean, Prithvi Shaw would hit four or five boundaries and then get out. And, you know, he's looking like Virendra Sehwag 2.0. Mayank Agarwal struggled mightily outside of his one half century. He was he was really struggling to, to pick the pace. And, and Saudi, Bolt, and Jameson, and Neil Wagner, they, they did really well. And DeGrandome offered a nice change of pace from, the, you know, the quicks to the medium pace. So, so he was good as well. But I think it was just a lack of part set execution it was almost a lack of heart too. I mean, you talk about in the second test really in that on the start of day three, I believe it was, you had Vihari and Bunthin and you had a chance to really prove something that day. Even if you didn't win the match, even if you weren't able to save the result of the match, you had a chance to at least show some resistance and, and show some confidence going forward. And, you know, we had, we had a bet going on as to how long Rishabh Bunt was going to last, and we set the over-under at five overs. And the crazy thing is, he only lasted like three overs, and he outlasted Vihari. So think about that. A reckless Rishabh Bunt, who the over-under was set at for five overs that he was going to last, actually outlasted the other guy. And, and that's just, you know, unheard of from an Indian test team that was ranked number one. And I think... Again, it was a good indication of where India truly is. Virat Kohli has been in a little bit of a rut now for this series. We'll see if he can turn it around in, you know, the ODIs coming up against South Africa. If he does indeed play them, there's a question of whether he should be rested or not. But I do think that India do have to look at their test lineup and, and kind of reshuffle some of these players because outside of Rohit Sharma being injured and not being able to play and Shikhar Dhawan being injured and not able to play, I mean, there's still five or six slots there that they really need to work on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't. So one thing I do want to point out is, is while the Indian batsmen really did struggle, and especially for the number three and four of India, there's really no excuse for this series, um, despite it only being two games. When you come into a series like this, you have to come and perform. And nobody knows it better than them too. But obviously, not a great series for them. But let's look at how uh, New Zealand's batsmen fared against India's batsmen. So the bottom lineup for India, uh, you know, you usually think Ravi Ashwin, not a great batsman, but he's generally known for coming in and scoring some crucial runs towards the end of innings. He can at least play. He can at least play. He can at least play. You're expecting some sort of contribution from him, right? In the first test match, a zero and a four. In the second test match, 
Uh, he didn't play the te- second test match. Sorry, no, yeah, though. he didn't he play the second Jodina, test. Who did a little bit better, but again, only a nine for him, and then a fifteen not out. So nothing big there. And of course, the bottom three of India. Let's not even talk about that. We already know that Bumrah, Shami, and Yadav just cannot bat. So if you take that and compare it to what New Zealand did at the bottom of the order, we already know about Jameson and Chinmay. I know we're going to get to that later. Those are huge runs, especially in test matches where scoring is very low, where wickets are easy to get, the ball is swinging a lot. That's That becomes crucial. So it's also part of picking a team and understanding con- the conditions as well. Um, so there, there are some other things at play here. While India's batsmen did flop completely, there's other ways to get runs. And I think there has to be a little bit of scrutiny on the strategy coming into the match versus just the performance of a few players. Although, like I said, they do need to take accountability for the way that they performed. 100%. I totally agree with what you're saying. And, and it wasn't just Jameson. Bolt had a 30-odd performance in there. I believe it was in the first yep. test. Yeah. So you know, New Zealand's bowlers were scoring runs as well. And like you mentioned, right. I mean, those are massive runs to get uh, at the end of an innings in a test match. Last point on India... Kohli came under some fire from the press with his actions on the second test. You know, when Williamson got out, he was, Kohli was very animated, yelling in the direction of Williamson. I don't know exactly what he yelled. He was accused of, he was accused of swearing at him. I don't think he did. But Kohli also did that for several other batsmen who got out. And I mean, it was very clear that India was going to lose the match. And it was very clear that there was no real reason for him to be acting like that. In light of what has happened in this series and the form that he had, your thoughts, if any, on Virat Kohli's outburst? Because we've talked about his demeanor in the field before, but this is just a sort of an unnecessary display of emotion, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, definitely, when, when you look at the, the context of the match and you see the wickets go down and you see Coley's reaction to it, you you obviously have to throw your hands up in there just to say, hey, what's going on? This this match is clearly over. But with that being said, at the same time, Chinmay, I don't remember the last time that India's taken a wicket and you don't see Coley scream in some sort of slur at someone. <laughs> if he wanted it's in the air at someone, but almost every time it pans to him, I think we all know the word, but he's always saying it every single wicket. And I think that's just kind of the passion that he brings. I think regardless of what he scores, regardless of where it is, he's always in the moment and he's the biggest cheerleader of the team. So while, yes, it was excessive for me as well, he's staying consistent with how he always acts on the field. Um, you know, he's always a cheerleader for all of his teammates. Um, he brings this passion that India didn't have before he was the captain. With Dhoni, it was, of course, a different type of leadership. And before that, you could question just passion in general. It was a lot of individual play. So, uh, anyways, I don't have a huge problem with it. I have a slight problem with the context of when he did it. I think it's just Coley being Coley. Pretty much covered what I had to say. I, I think, yeah, you actually have to know, always have to know the place and time. But, I mean, the cameras are always going to be on him, so it's not like any of this is ever going to go unseen or unnoticed. Um, it just happened to be cursing out probably his own fortunes, his team's performance. And like you said, um, their execution, their planning was not that good. Their execution was even worse. So I think it's just frustration. Swapping over to New Zealand now. Fantastic performance from the bowlers. Southie, Bolt, Jameson were great. The openers, Blundell and Latham were fantastic. I want to focus on Kyle Jameson. Because he's looking not just like a great pace bowler, 
but he's looking like he's going to be an all-rounder type player for them given the way he's performed in both limited overs and in this test series. And I think that's something that India can take a page out of these other teams' book when you look at teams like England. Australia are starting to do it now. New Zealand can go nine deep if they really wanted to. It's time to look at, you know, we talk about one through five, six and seven and typical roster construction. It's time to look at eight, nine and 10 even as not just pure bowlers. Uh, I think it's time to look at those spots as, you know, potentially being all round, all rounder type players. And Kyle Jamison seems like the perfect number nine guy who can just come in and, you know, smash 20 runs at the end of an innings if you need him to in a limited overs game or, you know, see out a test match. I think he almost had a half century. So the the eight and nine spots are no longer just, you know, throw some guys in there and see what happens. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. I completely agree. I mean, Jameson, 45 and then 49. He looked extremely solid. I mean, from a technical standpoint, from his ability to read whether he should go on the back foot or the front foot, he looked better than most of the Indian batting lineup during this test series. So I think this is a huge plus for New Zealand. He showed not only can he just score some runs quickly, I mean, 45 off 49 and then 49 off 63. So he wasn't just scoring. He was scoring well. He was scoring with technique, playing good cricketing shots. Um, So huge upside for Jameson. And then... Of course, we talked about the bowling. He gets extremely good bounce, is able to swing the ball both ways, um, caused a lot of trouble for the Indian batsman, as we saw. So very promising start for him. And I'll be looking to see him in more than just a test format going forward for New Zealand. I agree. I think uh, his height is what confused batsmen, especially on his in his own backyard. Um, I love how he made use of that pitch, the green pitches, uh, getting that swing, a little bit of seam, as well as that bounce. And I would like to commend... New Zealand's plan and also the execution of it. Stats say that Saudi has taken Kohli's wicket more than anyone else in Test cricket. So every time Kohli came to a crease, Saudi was there to bowl to him, except for the first time when Jameson got him out. And it was kind of just, you don't see, I mean, obviously we know Kohli is like very meticulous, but I think New Zealand just outplanned India in this entire series because you could just see like, they were just bowling specific bowlers. They had four seamers in the first test and five in the second. And that's just going with what is good for your pitches, knowing what works for you at home, and knowing which bowlers to bowl to which batsman. And I think that was just kind of key to me to see overall this entire chess match of these two tests. I wish there had definitely had been more than two tests, but as someone who in general likes to watch test cricket, I, I couldn't really complain at the quality of matches. New Zealand definitely wish that there were not more than two tests because they just racked up 120 world test championship points and India stay the number one test side but man they have some figuring out to do New Zealand rising uh, to number two and all of a sudden the world test championship we looked like it looked like India was going to run away with one of those final spots and all of a sudden now there's a little bit of a crowd in that two three four spot uh, India is going to have some interesting matches coming up in the summer. England has some big summer series. Australia-India will will happen as well, I believe, in part of this World Test circuit. So all of a sudden, I think if you're India, this was good. It was good that this happened early on in the process and not you know near the end where these results could swing the difference between making that final and, and not making it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you wanted to the time to lose a series really badly away from home 
now would be the time. You still have the lead, um, still a lot of cricket to go. It was a good wake-up call to see what the new players were doing. I mean, Rohit Sharma was out for this series, so you got to see what Prithvi Shaw and Mayan Gagarwal can do uh, under pressure to really take, take, take on the reins of being opening batsmen. Um, and not have someone to rely on on the other end. So now's the time to do it. Um, we'll see how they can bounce back. India will take on South Africa next in a three ODI set. South Africa coming off a 3-0 ODI win over Australia. We'll talk about that series as well as Sri Lanka West Indies after the break. You're listening to the Fall On Podcast here on FallOnCricket.com. Back here on the follow-on podcast with Jimmy Vaidya, Parth Joshi, and Ashay Chavan. We're talking Australia-South Africa, a limited overs tour between the two countries there. South Africa wins the ODI series 3-0. And Australia had won the T20 series 2-1. Warner, Finch, and Smith were fantastic in the T20 format. But for South Africa and the ODIs, I just want a, a little bit of trivia here. Who were the top three run scorers? For South Africa in the ODI series, if you can get even one of them, I'll I'll give you um, give you props. Clausen. That's that's one of them. You got any other names? John John Smuts. Yes, that's another one. That's that's two. And then uh, Janeman Malan was the third. And uh, Malan yes, and Clausen. Yeah, Malan and Clausen both had centuries. And Parth, you mentioned, I believe it was a couple podcasts ago, you mentioned where South Africa's current talent had to start stepping up and start performing and start occasionally making these big scores from time to time. What I guess we probably didn't expect was some of these other players who were previously unknowns now getting experience uh, making these big scores. So all this talk of A.B. De Villiers, and again, people are asking questions. It's my pet peeve. But all of a sudden, South Africa... After a 3-0 ODI series where Klaassen, Malan, and Smuts are your leading run scorers, uh, Lungi Ngidi is picking up right where he left off from the England series. Uh, Anrik Norche looks like a fantastic bowler as well. Rabada was out, but they still get the job done. All of a sudden, I mean, does South Africa even need A.B. de Villiers? Now it's a question of should he return? Not even when will he return, it's should he return. No, no, no. Not this conversation again. We talk about it so much. It's it's happening again. I mean, people are asking questions again and again of when A.B. de Villiers is coming back. Mark Boucher keeps answering them, which I appreciate. And there's talk of him being ready for the T20 World Cup. But now it's, I mean, I made the point on the last podcast that they don't need him. And so they shouldn't the need him. Here's the thing. A.B. retired, what, like 18 months ago? And I think every other podcast we've talked about him, whether or not he's coming back and whatnot. Secondly, Faf Duplessis just basically said he'd be retiring after this cup in October. I think he just wanted a last hurrah. You know, he's friends with AB. Um, AB's having his fun playing in domestic T20 tournaments around the world. I, I think he also thinks he's back in form and he wants to, you know, have that last hurrah. But if these guys can keep, if these young guys are getting all this experience, there's really no reason for them. There's so many, so many T20 international schedule from now until October, just so that teams can get experience and I guess get warmed up for the because it's a different kind of mental game, obviously. And I think that if 
they're the ones actually getting ready for it by being picked for these tours. I think if they have that good momentum going, they should realistically keep it, keep their teams how they are. I think the reason we brought this up to begin with, why the whole talk about AB coming back, is because for the first 16 months, South Africa looked horrendous. It looked like they would not score 200 in most of their ODI tests, or excuse me, in most of their ODI matches going forward. And that's why we had all this talk. It wasn't really until this series that we actually saw some of the young stars really step up and show that they could play in ODIs. Until now, some of the bigger names, the bigger young names, I guess, and I'm putting that in air quotes as we knew, were Aiden Markham, Tempa Bavuma. Um, those were the kinds of people I was saying a couple podcasts ago who really need to step up and show that they can play. I didn't even know that some of these guys existed. I knew about Klaassen and Schmutz, but um, you know, but barely. So I, I was not expecting any of them to step up. So now I think the conversation is real about should A.B. de Villiers come back because it looks like people are starting to prove themselves. If you asked me about two months ago, I would say we should really entertain the I, and I think I did mention it several podcasts ago, but I said they should entertain the chance of um, of AB coming in potentially if no so one can really step up. What happens if we, in three weeks we do a India South Africa series recap and South Africa struggles? Then we ask this question again, and the answer changes. No, see, okay, on the last podcast I said even after they had lost the series against England and they had lost the T twenties pretty in a pretty close fashion, those could have gone either way. In the ODI series, one was washed. They won one and lost one. I had said even after that series that they should stop this conversation, that they just went toe-to-toe with what is widely considered the best limited oversight in the world. And they did it with a bunch of youngsters and Quinton de Kock and Rossi van der Dussen. And Bavuma has basically locked up an opening spot. Uh, he was injured for this tour, so wasn't able to participate in the Australia series. But he played in those England games, and he was fantastic. So I- I'm not worried about Bavuma's place in the team. But I made the point that if you just saw that from your team, there should be no discussion about whether A.B. de Villiers should come back at this time or for the World Cup or, you know, a little bit before the World Cup, just so he can prep. There should be no conversation. And I think this series further cements it because there's a difference between getting experience and still losing versus getting experience and actually winning games. And you just went toe-to-toe with England and those results could have been flip-flopped. And now you've just swept Australia in an ODI series, which is it's very hard to do against a top-tier Australia team. It wasn't like they were fielding a B team, and they were playing their their big boys out there. So I think South Africa have to look at this and say, okay, we just went through a big reshuffling of our administration shortly after the World Cup where you know we, we struggled, and that was an unacceptable performance. But after that, from where they were at the end of the World Cup to where they are now is night and day. And I think the young players that they have are showing that they can perform. And when you really go down the roster, I mean, you can throw out 11 guys who could potentially win a T20 World Cup. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibilities for South Africa. And that's without A.B. de Villiers. So now I don't even think it's a when A.B. de Villiers will return. Now it's a should A.B. de Villiers return. And I think the answer is clearly, clearly no based on these last two series. I mean, I don't think it's going to change. I think they're going to keep producing this way, even if the results don't necessarily go their way. I think this is good for South Africa, these last two series. 
And, and I think the only reason we're actually having this conversation right now, right, is because Mark Boucher came out and said Amy DeVilliers will play the D20 World Cup if he makes himself available in the correct timeline and whatever that comment had to be. I, I think that's the reason we're only, that's the only reason we're talking about it, right? It's because South Africa, their board is entertaining the thought of bringing AB de Villiers back. I don't, I think if they weren't bringing any of this up, I, I don't think anyone, um, I don't think anyone would be talking about it. I think everyone has moved on. I think South African cricket is the reason why we are even having this conversation. Yeah, I think that's fair. And look, I understand Mark Boucher gets asked these questions. And as someone who has asked questions of athletes and coaches, I appreciate that he's giving a response. I appreciate that he's answering the questions. But at the same time, I, I, I agree. I think they need to put a, put an end to this. And I think they need to say, look, it's been too long and our young players are performing. So AB, uh, it's tough to say no, but we're going to have to keep you out. I think for South Africa now, heading into a series with India, a quick ODI series before the IPL starts, India is going to be closer to full strength than what they were in New Zealand. Rohit Sharma is still out, but Shikhar Dhawan is back, Hardik Pandya is back, and Bhuvneshwar Kumar is back. So this will be the best test yet for this young South Africa team. I mean, they're just coming off England, Australia, and now India. This is a great time for South Africa who are in spectacular form at the moment to, to play an India team in India. It's going to be, it's going to be a good series. And I think this is probably the the right time for this South Africa team to get this experience. I know it's a short ODI series, but they're going to play, be playing in India. It's a test of conditions for these young players. For some of them, it's their first tour out of South Africa. So their debut tours, um, visiting a different country. And I think, that, that would be the thing that kind of tells all, in the sense, where I, I think that testing the trying these players out, um, playing against a pretty fully strength India team, just minus Rohit, but they'll they'll be facing Bumrah in home conditions, Bhuvneshwar Kumar, and Pandya's back. By, by the way, Pandya has been killing in the domestic circuit. He had two matches back-to-back where he scored like a century and like 35 balls or something. So hopefully that's just tangent there, but hopefully that's him being ready for international cricket and the IPL again. Going back to South Africa, this, this is a great series for them to, to follow up on after the one with Australia. I mean, as you said, Chinmai, they're going to be riding high. They're going to have a lot of confidence. and They're going to come in to meet one of the best ODI teams when they're at full strength, which they basically are here. So, yeah, it, at least from a young batsman standpoint for the South Africans, the bowling lineup will be at full strength. So... But it'll be a really good test for them to see if they can score some runs here. Um, I know some of the younger players will be going to the IPL, many not. But it, it'll be a good segue in, and it'll be an exciting series. From the heavyweights of the world, we now go to some teams that have been struggling recently, but have some exciting young talent in Sri Lanka and the West Indies. A short tour there wrapped up between those two sides. Sri Lanka won the three ODIs, and then the West Indies swept the two T20s. I just want to talk about, you know, after the World Cup, we looked at these two teams and we said they don't have a lot of substance, but there's some young talent that's exciting and we'll see if it can materialize. At least we said that about the West Indies, maybe not about Sri Lanka because they were abysmal. In this series, though, Sri Lanka proved that they at least have two players in the 11 that they can count on, Avishka Fernando and Kusil Mendes at one and four respectively. And I think those guys 
the the big positive is that they're young players. Avishka's 21 and Kusal Mendes 25. So they're going to be there for a long time. And for a Sri Lanka team that was struggling to nail a starting 11 for years after the 2015 World Cup, this is a huge positive for them. And I think when you find those guys that you can build around, you can now just plug in those additional spots. And they still have some veterans that they'll keep uh, you know, throwing in there. But this was a big series for Sri Lanka in that sense where we were looking where was the young player going to come from for Sri Lanka. And all of a sudden, they've had these two guys really step up. And Mendes has played a lot of ODIs, but he's never really showed out like this before. So this was a big positive in, in Sri Lanka's eyes. Had to be. Especially in that second ODI when they had that partnership. That was uh, I was I was only watch, able to watch parts of it, but it was just it was mind-blowing to me. How they were just so methodically, you know, just rotating strike, hitting the boundary every now and again. But it was just, it was just like a perfect partnership. And I feel like it's been a little bit since we've seen one of those. Um, and in my eyes, at least, the ODI, the, both these series went exactly how we expect them to go. You know, West Indies struggles in the 50 over format, but they swept them in the T20I format. And I think that West Indies are always dark horses for the T20 tournament. So you never know how their form will be in October, but I think just going off of this, these two matches, the T20s against Sri Lanka, I know Sri Lanka's not are not world beaters, but they kind of just clicked overall. Yeah, Chinmay, I wanted to go back to one thing you actually mentioned earlier about how Mendes is not really that new to the ODI game. Um, so Fernando, of course, great showing from him, 21-year-old. He played brilliantly. He's really new to the ODI game, extremely promising young talent. But I think about a year ago, I was looking at Shawn Mendes saying he needs to get be removed from the team potentially. Maybe it's time for a new young player to come up. But I guess it's paid off to give him some chances, get him some experience, calm him down. And he's really been playing well recently. I mean, his average has just gone up above 30 before. I, I believe in 2017, it was in the low 20s, um, 22, 23 somewhere. So it's paid off to give him the chances. And now we're really seeing a core take effect in Sri Lanka, and that's what we've been bashing them for for several years. So hopefully this is the road up, and hopefully they can build around these two batsmen, and hopefully um, these two can stay in form, stay healthy, and you know bring up the next generation of Sri Lankan cricket. I remember you saying that part about Kusal Mendes. Um, I know that he has a slower start to his career. Again, he's only 25, but I think what, what we were talking about was his conversion rate. I, I don't think it's as good as we'd like it to be. Like His average is 30, like you said, but he has 1750s and two centuries, so you would like to see a slightly higher conversion rate. But as a number four future batsman, I think what he's shown in the last six months is definitely an improvement than last year when you were kind of saying he'd be dropped. Absolutely agree. And on the West Indies side, we had pinpointed three guys, Shai Hope, Nicholas Puran, and Shimron Hetmeyer. At least I had said that you know West Indies need to build around these three guys and remove all the nonsensical hit-or-miss players that keep finding their way into the lineup. And Shy Hope now, to me, looks like he is going to be an absolute stud for the West Indies for years to come. Hetmeyer and Puran are still kind of hit-or-miss, still a little too inconsistent for my liking and probably for West Indies' liking. But Shy Hope looks like a guy who's going to stand and deliver every single time, and he's starting to show that consistency to where you can anchor uh, a batting lineup around him and count on him as being a guy who's going to consistently score runs for you. And we, I saw that at least in this series. So I think for both these teams, 
where they were struggling, you know, after the World Cup to kind of find a direction. A lot of the older players were moving on or in the West Indies case, going around the T20 leagues, trying to continue reaping in the benefits there. But both these teams were really struggling for a direction. And now all of a sudden you see some of these younger players stepping up, rounding into form, not just seeing the potential, but now seeing the production come with it. I think that's got to be the biggest thing that you take away from a series like this. The results can go either way, but it's these kind of individual performances from younger players that you, you really like to see. Yeah, I, I think he's clearly shown that he's currently the best batsman that the West Indies have, just, you know, overall class, just across all of the formats. I, I think he's really the core of the West Indian batting going forward for the next decade, I would say. Um, he's really proved himself. He hits the ball extremely cleanly. It's actually really fun to watch. If you haven't watched Sheho, definitely go look up his highlights. He's, he's a lot of fun to watch. Um, like you said, Hetmeyer is still very inconsistent. We, we see when he's able to time the ball, when he gets big innings going, he's also a lot of fun to watch because he times it really well, but just not nearly as consistent. And uh, I, I think Puran is a nice, he's in between. I, I don't think he's as good as Shai Hope, but I, I think he's played a lot more consistent innings. He's shown a good amount of temperament, and I think he's a good candidate for the 50 over format for the West Indies going forward. So it'll be interesting to see if Hetmeyer and Puran can improve and hopefully Shai Hope can continue on this path that he's on right now because he's getting better every game. That does it for us here at The Follow On. As always, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and all of our content at followoncricket.com.